Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 54, Heavy Metal, where we will be looking at Chapters 112 and 113 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of being knocked down a few pegs. All right. I have a few different people that could be focused on when it comes to being knocked down a few pegs. Also, it's almost a little bit of a fake out for part of that. And I know that we sometimes choose our lens for the next one kind of by skimming, but I think this one worked out pretty well and not the way I had intended. I think you're right. And I'm looking forward to getting into it. So let's get our stuff going and then we'll talk about it. All right. For those that are new here, I mean, welcome. We're very far into the wise man's fear. Um, I hope you enjoy starting past in media res. <laughs> anyway, you can always go back. Little breakdown of the pod. Each week we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will then talk about a Fernie most of the week, which is not listed in my notes anymore. It has been gone for many a month, and I don't know how to describe it well. It's an Aristotelian model of practical wisdom. Thank you. And then we will also share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Dot Books. Also, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. All right. So we got two chapters today, which cover the beginning of Quoth's training with the Adem in earnest. Not just his, hey, Tempe, teach me. It's, oh, actual lessons. Yay. In fact, actually, I think Quoth is more like, yay. I got the feeling that this was both Vachette and Quoth taking one another's level to see where they actually are and to establish a rapport. I think a lot of times when you're looking at like student-teacher relationships or employer-employee relationships or mentor-mentee relationships, I find that a lot of times we frame that on how well does the mentor like the mentee? How well does the teacher like the student? How well does the employer like the employee? And I think it's a mutual thing. In order for any of these relationships to work, there has to be a mutual understanding and respect for one another. I absolutely agree with you. The thing that a lot of us don't realize when, let's say, we're going for a job interview, it's not just about how well we are received by the employer. You have every right to choose not to accept a job based on the things that you learn about the company or about the job or about the people that you would be working with. A lot of people, when they're hiring, hire for culture fit. And I think it's important as a prospective employee to also care about your fit with the culture as in whether or not it works for you. Yeah, I mean, you're going to be spending eight plus hours a day with these people trying to be productive. Is this going to be an environment where you're going to be happy? I'd also say liking people is different than being able to work with people. Absolutely. There are people that I absolutely like that I don't like working with. And there are also people that I really don't like that I actually work really well with. Ideally, you find someone that you both like and work well with. But since that's not a guarantee, I don't know, you got to be choosy about which things you can handle in a living situation because your work is really part of your living situation. If you don't enjoy at least part of it, then a third of your life at least is going to be spent in abject misery. And it depends on how much you don't like them and how much you can compartmentalize it from the rest of your working life. But also, let's say you don't like them, but you work well with them. That's also part of the potential for your working life to not suck. Yeah. Now, 
it gets a little bit different when it's student-teacher relationships. But I can tell you right now, some of my most valued relationships with other fellow adults are the ones that I've made with my teachers. Like, I was a non-trad student, so I was about 10 years older than everybody at, like, college level. And that meant that I was smack in the middle between the age of the teachers, generally, or sometimes older than some of the teachers, and the age of most of the other students. Not all of them, but a good majority of them. So I made friends, and the most lasting friendships with my teachers. And those relationships are so very valuable and got me into spaces that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten, like emotionally and work-wise and just knowledge-wise, just learning-wise. And I think it's important when choosing to learn from someone or from an institution to think about the way in which knowledge is shared and also to think about the relationships you'll have with the people imparting their knowledge on you. Because if you disrespect your teacher, you're not going to willingly learn. You're going to be a little shirt sure. in the corner of a room being a disruption to everything, to everyone around you. And you're not going to learn anything valuable. Yeah. The other thing that I get out of this is that this student-teacher relationship requires some vulnerability on the part of both. And I think that's really where some of that knocking down a peg comes into place. When they stop trying to impress one another and start trying to be real with one another. I'd also say intimidate one another. Yeah. There's a bit of both trying to impress and trying to puff out your chest and take the other one down. So let's go ahead and dive in. Our first one is The Hammer. This is where we're first introduced to Vachette in person. Previously, we've only known about her by reputation. I like the opener to this. It starts out very peaceful. There are a few little parks nearby us that seem very similar, just kind of a paved outcropping with a little bit of green space around it. And it feels almost like this little oasis of somebody made this space in the midst of nobody made this space. One of the first things that we learn about Vachette is that she actually speaks really good Aturin. And this actually really reminded me of how, like in my work, I speak with people all over the world and everybody speaks English to one degree or another because it's sort of the de facto business language. And one of the things I recognize is that it's oftentimes very easy for people such as myself to forget that this isn't actually the default. I mean, I can go to pretty much any place in the world and usually not have to work too hard to find someone who speaks English, especially if I'm in those portions of that place where there is more wealth and privilege. You know, I took a world tour recently and it was something that was very apparent to me that, yeah, I speak English and I speak better English than a lot of the people that I'm working with, but they speak way better English than I do their actual native languages. You don't speak any of their native languages. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> That's my point. And it's a bit of privilege that I bear. And it's something that I think a lot about. And I try to let that remind me not to judge people for how they speak or write because they're doing their best and they're doing a damn sight better than I would trying to do the other way. It's interesting that that's where you first notice things about Vachette. And for me, there are other things that I notice or that I'd like to point out. Vachette does not wear her sword on her hip. So it is in a place that is less accessible, where she has to be more intentional about retrieving it to cross her back, much the way that Kvothe carries his loot. She also is described as having the same moderate build I'd come to expect from the Adem, along with the pale, creamy complexion and gray eyes. And her hair was lighter than Tempe's, but also she's got a broken nose that Kvothe at first finds 
incongruous with the rest of her. Going back to the man mothers thing. <laughs> if everyone looks similar, there's a reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she also lives in a space that's more cosmopolitan. And so the fact that her hair is lighter might have something to do with more variety of genetics. More people coming through. Yes, as it were. I like the description of her sword being across her back. I also like the description of she smiles. She's much more expressive than most of the people here in Hert. And later on, we'll discover that she's actually considered quite wild for this specific area, wherein her normal, like, everyday life back home she was considered quite stodgy and reserved. Interpretations like that are so interesting to me because it does go to show that just because you're not someone's cup of tea doesn't mean you're not anyone's cup of tea. And it's also a reminder that you can sometimes enjoy going to a new place and building a new persona for yourself and let people see you completely differently. And it can be really fun. We'll get into that later. The other thing that we learn is that Quoth's early attempts to impress her do not go over so well. No. Mostly because he's trying to impress her. Yeah. Upstart little child. Though he does describe Vachette as being approximately only 10 years older than him, which means around 26, which is interesting because she also is quite wise. And I'm not sure if that's Quoth misjudging her age or if in this society wisdom comes at a lower age at a younger age we do know that she was selected to not just train at the school but teach at the school so that means regardless of her age we know that she's been entrusted by some fairly wise people with the tutelage of others which is that's not nothing <laughs> I think there's a couple miscalculations that Quoth makes that are completely understandable. One, he oftentimes, I think, forgets just how forthright the ADEM are. And two, he is also coming from an environment that has taught him exactly the opposite lesson. I think one of those examples of being very forthright is Vachette says, Tempe is closer to being a sailboat than a teacher. Yeah. And as his friend, you may fail to realize his faults. Yeah, she doesn't have the highest opinion of Tempe. And she doesn't sugarcoat that. No. Well, and I think it also kind of comes with this idea that there is a difference between being competent at something and being a good teacher of it. Yes. Because teaching is its own unique skill set. Teaching is hard. Yeah. Teaching well very difficult. It's why teachers, highly skilled profession, exist and parents don't just teach their kid things. Now, I do have some very talented friends who have legit skills in teaching who have chosen to be their children's teacher, but that's not the rule. That's a very special case. And even then, she sends her kids to a school a few days a week, but for the most part, they're homeschooled. I'm not knocking homeschooling. I'm saying that the reason that schools and the profession of teachers exist is because it is damn hard. Yeah. It's also like when you start a new job, there's always someone who's trying to show you the ropes. And the best person to show you the ropes is not necessarily going to be the person who's the best at that job because teaching is different. It is a separate thing and it requires building trust and rapport with another person. It requires you to be open to questions. It requires you to be curious about where they're at and being willing to meet them where they're at. One thing that Vachette said is only that which Benz can teach. Another thing she says is don't show me humility unless you mean it. She is not shy. She will correct him. She will express herself. She will attempt to make him understand that he is not the be-all, end-all, and he is not 
more impressive to her than literally any of her other students have ever been. In fact, he has to earn her respect so that maybe she'll stop trying to drive him away. She wants everything to be perfectly sincere. She wants all of the communication between Quoth and herself to be 100% on the level. That means no pretenses, no errors, no secrets, no manipulations, just this is what I think, this is what I believe, this is what I'm unsure of. And it's only when both people are in that space where they can share like that, that they're able to actually learn and teach because it really is a two-way street. Knowing how to communicate is also the way of a teacher. One of the things that was difficult for Kvothe is that there was a language barrier between him and Tempe. And so while maybe he's not exactly happy with the way that Vachette is portraying herself right now, and he may have chosen a different teacher just as a culture fit, which is kind of funny because as you go on, you realize that she's the perfect teacher anyway. She is the perfect culture fit for him. But in this instance, it doesn't seem like it. But he is very pleased to be able to talk with her and communicate as well as possible so that a lot of the concepts that were really difficult while learning Edemic are really difficult to get across. Like Tempe almost certainly could have explained it if there weren't that barrier of how do I even ask this question? And so the fact that Vachette doesn't have that barrier means that Kvothe can ask more detailed and specific questions. It doesn't mean that he'll get the answers he wants. No, but it does mean that he can get the answers that he needs. Vachette begins with her first task, go find a long piece of wood and bring it back to me. Anyone who has read or experienced any of these teacher moments understands that that is a switch or a pummeling stick, something. She's going to hit him with it. And she proceeds to tell him so and do so. He chose a willow branch. Again, with that trying to impress, totally biting him in the ash. He says, you said only that which bends can teach. So I brought you a very bendy switch to teach me with. And boy, does she teach him. There are reasons why when you hear about, I'm going to just say abuse of children back in the 50s and 60s, where... You had to go out and get your own switch. It was generally a willow switch and it hurt like a bench. Yeah. And then not only that, she adds in, I do not think well of you. You are a barbarian. You are not clever. You are not welcome. You do not belong here. You are a thief of our secrets. Your presence is an embarrassment and a complication that this school does not need. Now go have lunch and we'll talk more about this later. First, she says, we will meet here again in an hour after lunch. You will pick another stick and I will try to teach you this lesson again. But if you choose a stick that I don't approve of, I'll choose my own. As in, don't try to go easy on yourself. It's going to backfire. Fair warning. So then Quoth asks, how is this going to affect Tempe? Quoth is loyal and kind. And I appreciate that characterization. I wish he had as much regard for Will and Sim as he seems to have for Tempe, because I think at this point they still think he's dead. I will say that Quoth has also had sort of a battle-hardened relationship with Tempe that he has not had with Will and Sim. Yes. Like, their hijinks are relatively low stakes by comparison. Yes. Regardless, I appreciate that he is at least caring enough about Tempe in this moment to... Make sure that his actions won't result in Tempe being ostracized. And Vachette doesn't really sugarcoat it, but says, I don't know what's going to happen to him. It's not for me to decide. But the implication is still that Tempe would be in not a good place. He would definitely suffer if Quoth were to run off. Societally, yes. If not physically, who knows? Quoth is at a loss after this about what to do, so he just goes to get lunch. He doesn't see Tempe in the mess hall, which is both disheartening because he would like to see his friend and probably for the best because he doesn't want Tempe to see him with the physical manifestation of causing his teacher displeasure or 
reason to hit him in the face with a switch. Jeez. The sentence here of, I chose an empty table, not wanting to force my company on anyone. I've been alone most of my life, but rarely have I felt it so much as at this moment. It's soul crushing. Yeah, he's in a place where he feels not just like he's a little bit out of place, but he is well outside of where he's comfortable and where anybody else is comfortable with him. He doesn't feel safe. He doesn't feel welcomed or cared for. He chooses to eat even though he's not really hungry, mostly out of, I don't want to say a habit or fear, but mostly due to the fact that he has been hungry in the past, been starving in the past, and he has a hard time turning down food. It feels like it's a mechanical thing for him because he knows that his body will need it, even though psychologically he is just not there. And that deep, intense loneliness, it can affect how you feel physiologically. Even as your body may need it, your mind just doesn't want it. He sees a shadow of movement because he's not looking up. Briefly allows himself to feel hope, only to have that dashed relatively quickly by the visage of Carceret. And she basically just lets him know that everybody's been gambling on when he's going to drop out. Yeah, it smacks of a meaner version of the look to your left and look to your right. One of them will be gone within a half an hour (laughs) or a semester. Yeah, not only that, it's not just saying, oh, yeah, this school is very tough. A lot of you probably aren't going to make it. It's not only are you not going to make it, it's specifically you both. But we have a pool going and I'm really hoping I win. I picked a really early one. And even if I don't win, I win by seeing your bruises. And your whimpers of pain. What a sadistic fork. Then Quoth responds, you speak as a dog barks with no end, with no sense. And of course, everybody can hear him because he stage whispers it. He, in the framing device, takes every opportunity to explain that the Adimaru are geniuses when it comes to anything to do with performance checks. And so therefore, you know, of course the Adimaru made this up. Right. And he doesn't actually say that Carceret was really stewing over this. He just imagines that she was. I saw her face flush making the pale scars on her jaw and eyebrow stand out. He wants to believe that he got under her skin and that he is impressive in certain ways. I think if we read this straight, we can apply the taking one down a peg to her. And it seems like in this chapter that Kvothe has been taken down a peg. Seems like. But Carceret's presence and words and just mean things that she says and the way that everyone rejecting him says in his head, fine, then I reject everybody else. You can't fire me, I quit. But instead of leaving, he's like, I'm going to show you all. I'm going to make sure that you all eat your words. Carceret is not the first bully that he's dealt with in his life. And she certainly is not the last. And, you know, the other thing that we know about Kvothe is that he is persistent. At the end of this, he says it was a hollow victory, of course, but sometimes you have to take what you can get. It's interesting to think about a Pyrrhic victory or a hollow victory because you want a victory to feel like a victory. But when you leave the situation and neither person is feeling the better, and not because you're like trying to win over someone is stupid, let's all just try to win together, that's different. But when you're like, ha ha, except I feel like crap, oof. <laughs> Absolutely just oof. After lunch, Quoth shows up for round two, only this time, instead of getting a willow branch, he brings a practice sword from the school. Now we have some wooden practice swords, some full-on solid wood practice swords. If someone hit you with any intensity with those practice swords, it would be bludgeoning damage. It would be just broken bones, shattered jaws. He says as much. Yeah, you can do some serious damage with those. You absolutely can, even without meaning to. The first time that I practiced with Bokens, my friend who I was practicing with accidentally hit me across the wrist and I didn't have any protection across my wrists. 
It didn't bruise the skin, but oh my goodness, it like probably bruised the bone because it hurt. Not broken bone, but like it felt like a bruise for like a month. And, you know, Kvothe admits that he's taking a chance here. And at the same time, he uses this as an opportunity to illustrate to Vachette exactly what he's made of. You know, he takes off his shirt and he shows her the scars on his back. This isn't the first time that someone has tried to use physical pain to put him off learning. He just wants this part over with. It's like, yes, yes, I totally get the whole point of you're trying to intimidate me by pain as my teacher. It doesn't work. Could you stop it? And I think also what he's trying to do here is show that, no, he's not just some dilettante who's just like, I think swords are cool, so I'm going to go learn from the sword people. It's not Cody from (laughs) Sleeping City 2. Right. He's not just some upstart lordling who thinks that, oh, yeah, it'd be really cool to learn how to sword fight. He's saying, no, look, I'm taking this seriously. I want to learn not because of how cool I think I am, but because of how curious I am about this. He does bring up that he was brought up on charges, which is a bit of a gamble to admit to because that could easily convince someone that Quoth is not worth their time, not because of skill or any such thing like that, but because insubordination is just not a thing they want to deal with. They don't want to deal with insubordination, but if we remember Vachette, she, more than anyone else that Quoth has dealt with, does not want... Bullshirt. She wants to know that the person that she's training is going to be honest and sincere with her, is going to show her exactly who they are and be willing to be vulnerable. And this is Quoth doing exactly that. Not because he's trying to impress her, but just to show her, this is who I am. This is the kind of person that you are dealing with. You can deal with that how you like. I'm going to talk about things about myself that maybe I'm not proud of. I'm going to show vulnerability. I'm going to show I have made mistakes. I'm not perfect. I am also the sort of person who can accept that I've made these mistakes and still want to learn. That last bit. He is a voracious learner. Maybe he still has a little bit of that my people invented literally everything good about the world, but he still wants to learn about the world. And I admire the curiosity. But this this chapter feels a lot about posturing. And the next chapter, Barbarian Tongue, is all about dropping that. In which case, Vachette is almost taken down a few pegs, not by insults and cleverness, though there's a little cleverness, but by vulnerability. He closes the chapter by stepping back and closing his eyes just to see what happens. He's putting his faith in Vachette at this point. And the next chapter opens with Vachette rearing back to take a swing and sparing him. I wouldn't even say sparing him because that sounds like a different choice than I think she made. I think she made the choice to drop the ruse. Because as we find out, Quoth has definitely taken a gamble, but he thinks about all of the things he's learned so far from Shayan, from the situation that he finds himself in. Why would he be allowed to learn if all they were going to try to do is drive him away? Why not just send him away? Why not hand him off to Carceret? If the whole goal was for him to be beaten to death, why this whole ruse? Why this whole dog and pony show? If the idea was to make him leave, again, why go through all of this? So what he figures correctly is it's a test. He's not just going to sit here letting her beat him for days on end until he, quote, learns the lesson. He's just going to take charge of, hey, I don't want to get hit anymore. Can we pass by this? Here's the type of person that I actually am. You're not going to change my mind. Can we get on with things? I do love that there's almost sort of a mutual, I knew you were faking moment. How did you know I was faking? (laughs) That they both have. (laughs) Because as soon as she drops her ruse, Quoth is like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Literally, oh, thank God. <laughs> and, you know, they're both like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew you were faking, I knew you were faking. 
<laughs> I absolutely love the just tension break because the previous chapter is a whole bunch of built up tension. You think about a female dominated society where everyone's clad in red leather. And there are other books that I have read that have very similar premises, but instead they kind of play out the author's BDSM fantasies. And I, I, I don't know. I think that there's a place in the world for that because I will not kink shame. But this is almost setting you up to think that that's what this is going to be. And at that point, because this was written later than the one that I'm referencing. And if you know what I'm referencing, cool. And if you don't know what I'm referencing, that's all right. It would seem derivative or it would seem tired. But instead, this isn't about forcing both to succumb or to be beaten down. This isn't about making your hero grovel or disrespecting them as a character or disrespecting your audience because they had a belief that the story was going to go one way when it went the other. I think part of it is that the tension breaks with a laugh. Yes. And this is where Quoth is able to start telling a little bit more about his background, where he's actually come from. And I love the bit where he calls back to one of his early lessons with Elodin. He's like, oh, this was a test of how much I wanted to learn. This is nothing. One time I jumped off a roof. <laughs> they spend time together just talking. He explains in brief, probably-ish, who knows, because it is Quoth, why he was brought up on charges. And mostly because he really does care about what she thinks of him. And I think that's the biggest part of this, right? He really cares about leaving a good impression, even if he says he doesn't. I think what he's done is he's recalibrated what that means, though. I think he's realized that being sincere about what he says will be more respected, will be appreciated in ways that trying to burnish his reputation simply won't. It's not that he's stopped caring. It's that he's stopped trying to be someone he's not. When we go back to his respect for his teachers, it is clear that he has respect for some of his teachers and less for others. But I think he wants to go into a situation where he respects and has reason to continue respecting a teacher. You know, he talks about Arwell saying that he will gladly pass on the compliment of somebody who tended your wounds did it very very well arwell and mola yes and mola yes so they get to actually have a down-to-earth talk he says no offense vachette but you seem different than the other adam i've met and she responds you're just hungry for familiar body language i think there is something to that even as Quoth protests, and there are other reasons that she seems more familiar and different from the rest of the Adem here. But yes, English is kind of a universal business language, but there are still different mannerisms and customs and ways of just being that still come off, for lack of better wording, as foreign. Like, despite our similarities, when traveling, people will be able to tell the difference between someone from the United States and someone from Canada. Like, it's not that far away, and there is drift, but when we've gone to Vancouver, for instance, there is a slight difference. It just feels different than it feels like in Seattle or Portland. Like, just interactions with other people feel different. It's because they're using the metric system. Cute joke. Anyway... <laughs> Much better system. Really is. Tens are way easier to count. So much easier. We are the dumb ones. Anyway. <laughs> I also see it like I have colleagues in the Netherlands and colleagues in Belgium. Both groups are primarily Dutch speakers, but there are different cultural signifiers between the two. My Dutch colleagues are way more direct to the point of being brutally blunt sometimes. They can come off as rude. And then the Belgians are a lot more passive aggressive. Which is legitimately rude. Yeah. <laughs> but it is interesting seeing the difference between those. And then, you know, I have friends in Amsterdam. A lot of them aren't from there, though. You know, they're from Romania. They're from Bulgaria, 
all over the place. And you can tell they each have their own different ways of being and going about things. And yeah, you can tell the difference between them and the way they treat one another. They treat me. And some are a little more familiar than others, depending on what you're used to and how comfortable they are speaking English. This is where we learned that where Vachette grew up was more well-traveled. It's more cosmopolitan. People from outside came in and out. And she also spent more time in foreign countries and with people who spoke a turn constantly. Quoth's mind is blown a little bit when he finds out that there are additional schools and additional paths, that every school and every path has their own interpretation of the Ketan and of the Lothani, that there isn't just one right answer. And it makes sense, right? I mean, he's only, so far, only seen just Hert, which is a small village, really, and is not necessarily going to be the sum total of all of life in Ademre. Now, the next topic that comes up is Quoth asking, why is your sword different? Did you bring it from your other school? He doesn't have a lot to compare to. It's just Tempe's sword. But he notices that there is something different about it. Yeah, he notices that it's one carried on her back. And when she takes it out to trim the willow branch, you can see that it's a little bit differently shaped. The blade looks new. The hilt looks old. And Vachette immediately is like, well, how do you know about my sword? <laughs> and he says, well, I, I saw when you were trimming the branch. I just noticed that. And that actually kind of impresses her. Legitimately, finally, he actually impresses her by not trying. Yeah. And, you know, she reveals that she originally studied at a school that followed the Path of Joy, which is a different discipline from the Latantha the path of the sword tree. Vlatantha is supposedly more formal and the path of joy is generally a little more unrestricted, which I guess kind of makes sense. And like I was alluding to earlier, sometimes when you move into that new environment, you get to make a new persona for yourself, which she says can be like trying on a new pair of clothes. You know, when you start a new job or you start a new school, you have an opportunity to be somebody a little different. You're not bound by the same expectations that everyone has always had for you. You can reinvent yourself. Right. She was stodgy and uptight for the path of joy. And here studying the Latanta, she's seen as someone who's a little wild and crazy. That I don't think means she changed. I think that much like color theory, when you put, let's say, paint chips under the lighting that is at the store next to the paint chips, the, the paint samples, they look a certain way. And then when you take them out of the bright white or the bright yellow lighting and into the colder greenish or colder bluish lighting of the fluorescence, it completely changes what the color is or what your perception of the color is. Also, if I were to put the same color, like let's say I had kind of a stormy purple and I put it on a green background, it would look darker on a lighter green background than it would if I put it on a navy blue background. And it's also just, I think, a simple matter of relativity. Like, she was stodgy as far as people were concerned at the Path of Joy, but here, studying at the Path of the Sword Tree, that same stodginess is still really loose and wild, and it lets her feel actually a little free. She kind of likes it. I guess the other thing that I really got to here is... As they're talking about the path of joy, this brings her to a question, is it true that you said that the Lothani comes from the same place as laughter? And here Kvoth hits his imposter syndrome hard. And yeah, Kvoth is like, look, I don't know how I came up with that. I came up with this thing. He flat out says, I don't know what that meant. And he is a little bit worried that she will think him dishonest or that He's stolen it somehow or cheated. And so he proceeds to explain Spinning Leaf. And she looks at him and goes, oh, no, you stole the answer from yourself? It's a very gentle chiding, but very graceful. And then she goes on to explain the big secret. No one knows. Yeah, they don't understand the Lothani. Like, people spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. 
it's okay to not understand the Lathani. In fact, not understanding the Lathani is kind of the point. Not understanding the Lathani is of the Lathani. And admitting that you don't understand it is even more so. Yes. And I think she's trying to get him out of that stage where he has to justify everything. I've talked about the class that made the biggest impact on me from college a few times. And it was something where the class was given supplies to do things that were creative and the freedom to do things that were creative and given no instructions, not even be creative, literally no instructions. Here are things, do with them what you will. We're going to have one huge canvas, encourage people to paint on it, encourage people to paint over what other people have painted on it. It doesn't erase it, it just builds on it. And at the end, you will have something to share as a group. What, what kind of thing are you, something? But what kind of something? But, but what are we supposed to do? Give us something at the end of the workshop. What? Something. But, but, but. <laughs> the impulse is always, when you're in that situation, it's to ask, what do you want me to do? And then the response back is, what do you want to do? It reminds me of a, this is a third-hand account of like a YouTube essay that I listened to. But essentially, it's trying to get someone to be creative you're going to be more successful at getting them to be legitimately actually creative by giving no instructions than you are if you say, be creative. You will get a person to tip their mind into spinning leaf by setting them out in Minecraft with no goal in mind than to just say, hey, be creative. Oh, just do that. Yeah. <laughs> because then you think that you're doing something to try to please someone else, to try to guess what they think is creative. It kind of falls into that apples to apples or cards against humanity problem of playing to your audience and trying to figure out what they think would be creative, not just choosing to do things for doing them sick. And I think both have their own places. We also get another conversation here about, again, just the sheer vague nature of the Lithani. We also get a bit of a discussion about the limitations of language. So a Turin is a very structured language and a very precise language. It's very granular. And that doesn't really suit discussions about the Lothani. Because the Lothani is as much about a mood as it is about a specific code. It's all about being imprecise because it is highly situational. It is about how, not what you think, but how you arrive at decisions and then training yourself to trust those decision-making practices. And then Vachette naturally says, okay, let's talk about some other things that are like this. Define love. Oh, okay, right? <laughs> I'll just explain what love means. And he at first thinks it's going to be easy, and then he thinks about it for a little second, at which point Vachette pokes a hole right away. I thought about it for a quick moment, and then a long moment. Vachette grinned. You see how easy it will be for me to pick holes in any definition you give. He proceeds to give definitions and proceeds to have holes poked in them. Yeah, I think that that is a good explanation. And I think that that is probably the best lesson that he could have on the Lothani at all. Mm -hmm. And they then start using that as a springboard to go into learning a demic. And... Pretty quickly, Kvothe learns that, no, his academic really isn't all that good at all. It's kind of like the way that my Spanish teacher tried to explain. We're going to teach you Spanish, and by the end of this, you will speak as well as a three-year-old. Right. All Kvothe has is some very basic crude sentence structures. He understands many of the gestures, but not all of them. He doesn't always order things in the correct way. His structures are oftentimes missing the point. Someone who is being charitable to him can figure out what he's trying to say, but you know he's not able to convey true subtlety or you know the real depth of what he's trying to say. I like this part. I learned a great deal about Edemic over the next several hours. Just hours. After a month of dancing about and drawing in the dirt, 
Learning from Vachette was so easy, it felt dishonest. He started out on hard mode, and now he has, I'm going to say normal mode, and there is absolutely no shame whatsoever in changing your difficulty level, if you have the choice, to suit your specific level that you are currently at, right? Let's say both of us play guitar-ish. <laughs> We're both learning. I think we will both be lifelong learners. And starting off hoping to be able to play something incredibly complex. Nope. Starting off with something mildly, moderately, something complex. Sure, maybe if you have tab and you are really good at hearing things and, and you dedicate yourself and you practice forever and ever and ever, you might learn it at the expense of learning foundational structures that scaffold your learning. And I think that that's pretty much what Kvoth has done. Instead of learning how to play scales or his chords and have smooth transitions and have the foundational bits. He's trying to learn through the fire and flames without a teacher or with a teacher that doesn't teach people, but just plays it. You know what I mean? Well, he's been trying to learn by immersion without someone who is equipped to actually guide him in ways that he'll understand. Like Tempe's been teaching him as much about Ademic as he's been teaching Tempe about a Turin. It's a very difficult situation. And of course, Kvothe has struggled. Like there's no way that he wouldn't because they've both had to basically dumb it down to baby talk to be able to speak with one another. And that's okay. Because remember, that was the situation that they were in when they decided to start learning one another's language. You've got to start where you are. And so now he's in a situation where, oh, hey, there's someone here who actually, one, is incredibly fluent in my language and, you know, can speak it with ease and also knows how to teach. Suddenly he's getting formal lessons from someone who can meet him where he's at instead of having to try and find a way to meet in the middle with one another. I think that that is similar to our experience with trying to be, quote, self-taught or rather learn from the Internet with guitar and then actually starting to take lessons. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, <laughs> it's going to be easier. So then they go have dinner. Vachette tends to his wounds, gives him a salve. And then she asks him to show her his K-Tan. Now, this is also where we get to see a little bit of a difference between Tempe's teaching style and Vachette's teaching style. Tempe would stop both at every little mistake. Vachette just wants to see what mistakes he makes throughout the whole process. Doesn't give him feedback. He thinks that he's hot shirt for a while. And then he realizes after he knows he made a mistake. Oh, I'm not actually better at this than I thought I was. I love her response as well. It certainly could be worse. He's like, yeah, you could, for instance, be missing a leg. It's a little ableist, but at the same time, the stances do actually require an able body. So I'm not as upset with language choices, but so she still goes into like, you've never fought before you fought with Tempe. You're still learning. This is still very, very fresh. This is still very, very bad. We're going to undo what you learned and redo things in a way that actually works. Let's just go with that. She basically says all of your mistakes are understandable and they're fixable. The next thing we go into is her asking, well, what do you do for a living? He explains that he's a student, but then he also says that he's a musician. And the way that we finally now get an explanation of why Tempe acted like he felt so much shame around his interest in music is that to the Adem, to the Edemic people, emotions and the spreading of emotions and the purposeful manipulation of emotions. Someone who can masterfully do that with a musical instrument especially, to a large group of people especially, is essentially the same kind of person to them that a sex worker would be to people who view sex and sexual being as shocking or inherently something to be private. Yeah, I think the way that she looks at it or the way that Adam look at it is that music 
and expression of emotion you know is something that is reserved for your closest circle for your closest friends family members lovers like it's something that you do not just share i'd push back on friends i don't even think that it's with close friends that's fair it's at best with family right because the adem are all about sincerity and public musical performance is well there's always an air of artifice about it like you write a song about heartbreak but you're not necessarily feeling that heartbreak every single moment that you're singing it at a certain point you're focusing on just playing the song for the audience and that's not of the lithani maybe but also i think it's more about gathering an entire group up into kind of this vulnerable shared state i think that that's the thing that makes them so uncomfortable it's emotions are meant to be private and sharing those emotions across a large group of people is the opposite of that and then to do it for money is even worse i think the thing that i come away from this is that different cultures have different boundaries and it does you no good to sit in judgment of those boundaries without trying to understand where they're coming from to make this a little bit more foreign to quoth the adem are familiar with musicians and in some instances are okay with the idea of a traveling musician with private sessions but she says it is a valuable occupation but not a respectable one which i think is what most people think of when they think of sex workers. I on the other hand think that if that's by your choice, I think that there should be a union. I think that there should be actual like standards for how one should be expected to be treated and that we should respect people for that work. I think that the problem with sex work isn't the people performing the sex work. I think it's with society shaming it. and with it being taboo i think that that's the problem with it and also people who would abuse sex workers i think really what we get from vachet here is she doesn't really seem to judge kfoth for this but mostly just caution him that this may not be something that he wants to just advertise yes i also have a mild issue with preventing someone from doing something because you think that it will get a bad reaction from others. It's a whole separate thing and it's not something that we need to get into right now, but it is something to keep in mind. To wrap this particular part up, Kvoth says he accepts the reasoning and says he accepts this as a thing, but he's still being very pushy and is still trying to just convince her that the entire societal view of what is essentially his life and livelihood and a connection to his soul where he is the antithesis of what is respectable here isn't that bad it's fine you shouldn't be this shamed by it your whole society is wrong for feeling this shame and vachet is like oh you're so young just don't do it don't 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 try to completely change the entirety of the edemic culture it's not going to work we understand We're not stupid. We have a particular way of being, and you're far from the first and probably far from the last to try to convince us otherwise. She does acquiesce to the idea that some of the academic people find it fascinating, but it doesn't matter. They aren't going to change their social views of the entire society just because some 16-year-old musician says, "But it's not that bad." That sort of cultural shift oftentimes takes decades if not longer. I mean, look at how our society accepts gay people. Like how many years has it been since Stonewall? Yeah, that was in the 60s and I forget what math is. I mean, 2010 was only a few years ago. Oh, sure. You get the point. It was a while. And it's still in certain parts and in, with certain people not acceptable. So, yeah, Quoth is not going to change the societal attitudes. not on his own and not all at once and not probably ever so that let's go ahead and move into the phronemos it's your turn and i really did not have a whole lot in the way of choices here so we have the shed 
I think one of the big things that we get here is that difference between simply practicing a thing and teaching the thing. A lot of people think they can be teachers because they know a subject really well, but teaching it is a whole different bag of cats that requires a different skill set. I mean, this is why people go to school for higher education just to be teachers on top of whatever other degree that they already have. Whereas Tempe was stumbling through teaching Foth, Vachette has not only mastered the K-10, but mastered the art of instruction. She keeps Quoth humble, but also meets him where he is without judgment. She holds him accountable for his mistakes, but also makes it clear that he can do better. Like, so when Quoth messes up, she's not going to just rush in to stop him, but she's also not going to let that go on down the line, unremarked and uncorrected. She also helps Quoth pass his imposter syndrome around his answers about the Lathani and helps him make peace with not understanding it. I think the big thing that Kvothe has been trying to do is make a good first impression. Hope that they like me. And Vachette is slowly helping him come to realize that if he wants people to like him or be impressed with him, he just needs to be a person that is worth respecting, worth admiring. To be authentic and not to be authentic TM, just actually be himself. Exactly. I mean, it's that... Just be yourself advice that is probably one of the hardest, simplest things to do. You kind of have to tip your mind into the spinning leaf. Yeah. Whether you're going into a job interview or starting a new position or any of that, like, what does it mean to be yourself? You have the opportunity to choose how you be. Exactly. Like, are you doing that because you want to make a first impression or do you just want to be you and have people see you? and respect you for who you are. And I think that's something that Kvothe has needed help in, frankly, because it takes being in a position where it's okay to be vulnerable to be able to do that. And one thing we know about Kvothe's life is that it hasn't been safe for him to be vulnerable around most people. It hasn't been safe to do that at the university. It hasn't been safe to do that in Ventus. It hasn't been safe to do that really since he was with his troop. He hasn't had that. And so Vachette is working to help get him to that space where he can be that person. And I think that she also does a really good job of instructing Kvothe a bit about some of the cultural mores that he's going to be dealing with here in Ademre. And she does it in sort of a non-judgmental way. She doesn't necessarily say, oh, you're a terrible person for not conforming to these. What she says is, this is how people in this culture are going to look at you. That is something you have to consider when you think about their reactions to you. It may not be personal. It's because there are certain signifiers that you're putting out there that set them on edge. She is willing to accept Kvothe's ignorance as well as see his potential. That is why she gets to be our model of practical wisdom. That and it's never Kvothe. Yeah, there is that too. <laughs> so you have the thing of the week here. What'd you pick? My thing of the week is set goals that are big and put a time limit on it. They don't have to be huge. They don't have to be life altering, but set goals that are maybe bigger than you think you can achieve because not to sound trite with the whole shoot for the stars or, you know, you'll wind up at the moon. I don't know. It's more, for instance, you are going to play in the student concert for our local guitar shop where we take lessons. Up to this point, you haven't really focused on getting an entire song understood, memorized, figured out, playable, sounding great. And now, four months from when we are recording, you will be performing in front of a crowd with a band and with people singing. You can mess up. This is all students. No one really is going to be that shocked if some people miss a chord or two. But this is a whole new experience because you can't go backward. Yeah. <laughs> and so that is a big goal. But you know what? I haven't heard you consistently practice as much as you are now. Now that you know you are on the schedule, now that you know that you have been approved to be part of this. It is a huge motivator under your butt. Yeah, 
I'm a little nervous. I'm also very excited about it. And so my advice really is like, so I have a huge goal that by the summer, I will have made the walk-in closet that is attached to the room that is essentially our studio. I will make that into a crafting haven because I haven't had a great place to craft or paint or work on projects in a very, very long time. Like I haven't really ever had a great place to do any of it. I've never been able to design a space around being able to do the things I love to work on. And so I have a big goal. But the thing is, we have previously done a big do-it-yourself thing by redesigning our bedroom. And it wasn't a small redesign. It went from what was essentially a blank canvas to being this lovely, cozy, star night, like beautiful fantasy bedroom in the course of about a month, maybe a month and a half of work. But if you look at the before and after, it was a huge goal. Things that I'd never done before in my entire life, like redoing flooring and putting up wall paneling and all of that. Like I have some handy skills, but I had never done a huge like design project for an entire room. But I set myself up with the goal and gave myself a time box and I knocked it out of the park. You have set yourself with a huge goal of performing a song live. And you know what? I'm so proud of you for the fact that I know that you have picked up your guitar so much more often in the past few weeks than, you know, the last two years. Yeah, uh, it's been a lot easier to get into daily guitar work just because I know I've got this goal. We'll probably post the video of it on our Discord channel when it goes live. If you remember, cool, yay. If I remember, yeah. No promises, but... <laughs> I think it would be fun. I am not going to be performing because I play music that is not <laughs> at all similar to the rest of the lineup. And I don't want to play in front of a whole bunch of people. I like having all my music that I work on for myself. And generally that's true of me. But for me, this is just a way to prove to myself that I can do this, that I can actually play all the way through a song, that I can keep rhythm, that I can hit the chords right, and that I'm doing it in front of an audience that's just people to hold me accountable for it. I absolutely love the idea of setting yourself up with something that feels just a little too big and working towards it and surprising yourself. It reminds me a little bit of the concept of OKRs or observable key results. And it's this idea that you set an ambitious goal, but not too ambitious. So it has to be feasibly achievable, but one that you're going to have to stretch to do. And then there also has to be a way to measure progress towards that goal. And that's what you are measuring against. And that's what you're using to fine tune your performance and your practices around. So yeah, it's a little bit of that. I think that's a good thing of the week. With that, let's go ahead and move into seven words. I've got the words from the books and I had plenty of choices. This time around has lots of not only just choices, but good choices. And I'm a little jelly. So uh, we'll start at the top here. In a general sense, that is true. <laughs> some, not all of them are good, but there are some very good ones. There are going to be some stinkers. I'm not laughing because I think that that was bad. I'm laughing because those words in the tone of voice you used, yes, like, <laughs> it just strikes me as funny. So then we've got the hammer the clay, the spinning wheel, in the same way that Quoth is the flame, the thunder, and the broken tree. Then we've got, so I thought this would be appropriate. You're right. You just kind of pulled everything that was seven words in a row. I might have curated the list a little better. Then we've got, I am going to hit you now. Yeah, not great, but hey, it's seven words. It is. I do not think well of you. Again, not great. You are a thief of our secrets. Say to me, yes, Vachette, I understand. I've got, how do you like your new teacher? Everyone gambles on when you will leave. You're just hungry for familiar body language. I'm from Faint, 
a town farther north. Is that why your sword is different? I have traveled much and seen much, and then I have the one that I actually chose, which was from earlier, only that which bends can teach, which I think is a very wise bit and something to remember that flexibility is important and it's a mutual thing, both flexibility on the part of the teacher and the learner. I'd say that some better choices, not than the one that you chose, but better choices than the ones that you read off, the smile tugged back onto her mouth. I needed to make sure of you. What do you know of my sword? You look pensive when I say that. A person can pretend to swim too. How have you managed to fool us? Honestly, you people sound like drunk cartographers. It will be simpler to show you. A musician on top of everything else. And nothing carries more emotion than music. Yep, there were a lot of them and I missed some. So you had words from life. What did you pick? A little backstory. Found out this morning that one of our friends has found a screw in one of her tires. And so it inspired me to pull seven words let me know if I can help. Because sometimes people are less willing to just ask because they think they'll be a burden or they think that they can handle everything on their own and that just because they can means they should. And sometimes for the people who are strongest in your life, offering to help is a better way to get people to accept help than expecting them to ask when they need it. Yeah, I think that's wise. And it's a great way to show that you care to them and that you're there for them. So with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapter 114 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Lessons of the Past. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Or join our Discord. It's absolutely free, and we love chatting with you all. With that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. It's a duckosaurus. Mm, 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 mm. The things we find on Instagram. <laughs>